0: Good afternoon, it's a great blessing that God has given us that we have time to, to gather together uh, as his people to remember the price that he has paid for our redemption um, and to join together in praising his name. I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts if they're not already open there. We, we just finished up reading the book of Acts in our congregational Bible reading uh, about a week ago and when we began reading the book of Acts back in the middle of the summer, uh, we spent some time focusing on this passage that Jonathan just read here at the end of Acts chapter 2. We talked about some identifying marks of the New Testament church. We saw from this passage their devotion and reverence for God, their fellowship and service towards one another, their, their joy and their evangelistic zeal towards the world around them. But now that we finished reading the book of Acts in our Bible reading, I want to take some time to come back and consider these ideas again, perhaps from a a slightly different perspective. I want to ask the question today, would you want to be part of the New Testament church? Now, the About Us page on our website says we are a family of Christians striving to follow the pattern of the New Testament. That's what we claim to want. That's what we claim to strive to be. But is that really what we want to be? If we could go back in time and actually live in the days of Peter and John, in the days of Paul and Silas, would we have wanted to join the church they were a part of? Would we be happy if the church in Jerusalem or the church in Antioch or the church in Ephesus or the church in Corinth was our local church family? Are we really seeking what we claim we are? I want to look at some things in the New Testament church that might cause us to have second thoughts about joining their number uh, and challenge our perspective of what it is we are actually looking for uh, as a church. One thing that I think we see even here in Acts chapter 2 is that the New Testament church was inconvenient. Read verse 45 and 46 of Acts chapter 2 again with me. Verse 45, it says, "...and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. You know, I think we we read that passage and we think that's wonderful. That's what we want to be. But do you realize what that means? Notice there in verse 45, it says, Selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. When was the last time that one of us sold something that we possess for the sole purpose of having more funds to use in the Lord's work or for the, for the Lord's people? What if that was the standard? What if that was the expectation for this church? When, when somebody wants to come and place membership, we say, well, normally when somebody places membership, you know, the first thing that they do is look through their finances and see something that they can get rid of. Uh, so that they can give more to the church. You know, if, if that's what we said when, when you were coming in, you might think, "Ah, oh, I don't know if I want to be part of that church. No, it, it required great sacrifice from them. To be this kind of, uh, to show this kind of devotion required some inconveniences on their part. You, you notice there in verse 46, it says, and day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. So, so what are this church's service times? I just want to see if, if this meets my schedule. Um, well, in this church, we normally meet you know, six, seven days a week. Um, and in fact, we, we actually expect that, that most members uh, make a practice of opening up their home on a regular basis, so they can have other people into their homes, uh, so that they can develop deeper relationships. That, that's a lot of commitment. Um, I, I'm not sure if that really fits with my schedule. You know, when when we take a step back and look at what this would require of us, is this really what we're looking for? That's what the early church was. That was the type of time and resources and energy that they devoted to the Lord's work. And while we're talking about service times, go ahead and skip forward to Acts chapter 12. Remember in Acts chapter 12, and we'll talk about persecution here in a little bit, but remember in Acts chapter 12, James the apostle has already been put to death. Now Peter is put in prison, and he's being held in prison at night, Um, expecting fully that the next day he's going to face trial and likely be executed. And so in the middle of the night here in Acts chapter 12, in verse 5 it says, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And so Peter is sleeping in the prison. All of a sudden an angel wakes him up, uh, looses his chains, opens the gate. He goes out in the middle of the night realizes this is not a dream, and so he goes to the house of Mary. And and what does he find? Look in verse 12. It says, When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. It's the middle of the night. And here many of the brethren are gathered together praying on Peter's behalf. You know, what, what if this church said, well, you know, this, this coming week we're all going to meet at midnight and we're going to pray together through the night. You know, well, you know, my, my kids have school in the morning and I have work in the morning. Let's meet in the evening. We'll say a prayer together. I'll pray before I go to bed. Um, but, you know, we got to get our sleep, right? That wasn't the attitude of the early church. No, the early church are so devoted to the importance of prayer on Peter's behalf as he is there in prison. He's sleeping, they're not. (laughs) They've gathered together so that they can be praying for him in the middle of the night. And not only that, let's turn forward a little farther in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20, in verse 7. Acts chapter 20, verse 7, it says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. now We, we don't know how long Paul actually preached, but when it says he prolonged his message until midnight, probably wasn't your standard 30-minute sermon. Um, and Paul, he's, he's getting ready the next day to go on a voyage he's not saying, hey, guys, I got a big trip to make tomorrow. You know, let, let's call it quits early. I need to get some sleep. No, in fact, he doesn't have that much time. He wants to spend all the time that he can with the brethren, all the time that he can in teaching and edifying them. And even when people start to fall asleep, <laughs> we see Eutychus, a young man sitting in the window, has a near-death experience Uh, as he falls out, uh, from the window, he is presumed to be dead. Perhaps, uh, this is a miraculous healing of him. Um, but they don't say, okay, it's time to call it quits. Uh, you know, somebody just almost died because it was getting too late. Uh, let's all go home and get some sleep. Look in verse 11. It says, and when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. He spends time with the brethren through the night because that's how important what they were doing together was. We, we don't know why, why was it that they met in the evening or even into the night. Um, you know, we, we do see some evidence at least later on in early church history. Uh, Tertullian talks about the meeting at nighttime to avoid persecution. So they even at one point, uh, early Christians made that a practice so that they could meet regularly in the middle of the night uh, to, to avoid persecution. Is that what's going on here? We don't know. Uh, you know, Was it that they had worked during the day, and so they had spent all this time working, providing for their families, and this was the best time that all of them could meet together? Uh, or had they met earlier in the day, and what they were doing was just so important, they spent all day together, even into the next morning? Whatever the case is, This wasn't a church that put high priority on convenience. They didn't put high priority on making sure they get enough sleep. On making sure this works with my schedule. No, they put high priority in what they were doing together. You might say, well, Grady, well, we live in a little bit of a different world today. You know, things just aren't the same as they were then. You know, maybe it's not so much that we live in a different world maybe we're a different church than they were. Maybe we're affected too much by the priorities and expectations of our culture. What we see is that the early church was devoted. The early church put a higher priority on devotion than convenience. We, we read back there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh. They saw how important this was. They were willing to make any sacrifice. Remember Jesus, when he was calling disciples unto himself. We read in Luke 14 that a large crowd had come to to follow him. And he is not trying to, you know, play to their carnal desires and find things that are going to attract them to be his disciple. In fact, quite the opposite. He warns them what it's going to cost them if they want to truly be his followers. In Luke 14 and verse 27, he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He uses some illustrations to talk about making sure that you count the cost. And then he concludes in verse 33, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple than that's the standard. If we want to be disciples of Jesus, it's not about us anymore. We've crucified self. It's no longer we who live, but Christ who lives in us, Paul says in Galatians 2.20. And that means everything that I possess, all my time, all my energy, my very life isn't mine. It's the Lord's. And that needs to show in the way that I think about my work in his kingdom the way that I think about my responsibility to his people. If we're truly wanting to be the New Testament church, if we're truly wanting to be disciples of Jesus, then we need to forget about trying to make church convenient for me. Yes, we want what's going to be most helpful, most edifying for everybody. We're trying to accomplish that. But we need to be willing to make sacrifices for what's most important. Do we really want to be the early church? Is that our focus? Is that our goal? If you were back there, would you have wanted to be part of that church? Or are we more interested in convenience than devotion? But as we continue to look through the book of Acts, closely related with this idea, the early church was uncomfortable on multiple levels. The early church was pushed far outside of their comfort zone, both physically and culturally. Um, Look in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Talks about... The uh, stoning of Stephen, it says there in verse 1, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Do you want to be part of the New Testament church? Well, for them, it meant persecution. It meant that they were driven from their homes for fear of being dragged off and imprisoned or even put to death like Stephen was. Can you imagine if being a member of the church at Eastside meant that any day you might have to pack up all your belongings and flee the area because of persecution? When we talk about the New Testament church being uncomfortable, we aren't talking about them uh, having to meet in a building with no AC or less than desirable bathroom situations. We aren't talking about them having to wear masks or sit in uncushioned chairs. We are talking about them living in constant danger, being displaced from their homes, imprisoned, beaten, persecuted, even threatened with death executed for their faith and this testing of their comfort zone shows up in some more subtle ways as well not only in the more obvious physical persecution but in some breaking of cultural norms of societal standards of accepted traditions that many of them had grown up with from childhood look in Acts chapter 10 Acts chapter 10, you remember here that Peter is on the rooftop uh, in the middle of the day. He's praying and all of a sudden he sees this vision and he sees uh, a large sheet uh, of animals um, lowered down of all different types of unclean animals. And in verse 13, it says, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. If we look further down in verse 28, Peter starts making application of this vision when he goes into the house of Cornelius, verse 28, it says, And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Try to put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. From your very earliest memories, you've been trained by your parents by your entire society, everybody you know, um, not to eat unclean meats, right? All of a sudden, God lowers this sheet of animals, animals that have never passed your lips, and he says, kill it and eat it. God, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, Here, when he makes further application of this and going in and being... A guest in Cornelius' house. He says it's it's unlawful for a Jew to have this kind of fellowship, this kind of relationship with an uncircumcised Gentile. But God has shown me that everything that I'm comfortable with, I need to rethink that. You know, the gospel was counter-cultural. It was non-traditional. It was revolutionary. It required disciples to redraw the lines of their comfort zone to fit the dictates of God's will under the new covenant. Um, Are we willing to go outside of our comfort zone to serve the Lord? Maybe that means physically, uh, maybe A time will come when we'll face the kind of persecution that they're talking about here. You know, if if we're not willing to deal with some much lesser forms of physical discomfort and seeking to sacrifice, seeking to serve, um, then what makes us think that we're ready for the kind of persecution that they were facing? Are we willing to have everything that we have been taught And thought, everything that our our family or our society or or people that we respect approve of, are we willing to break with all of that, if necessary, to serve the Lord in the way that he has directed us? Well, we see the early church was genuine. the New Testament church put a higher priority on sincere pursuit of God's will than their own physical or emotional comfort. Look with me in 1 Peter chapter 1. As Peter is talking to uh, the brethren in this letter about the trials that they are facing in a physical sense, says, In this you rejoice, talking about the salvation that they've received, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. How genuine is our faith? Do we have the kind of faith that can be refined and purified by trials and difficulties and uncomfortable situations? Or does discomfort, persecution, hardship, shake our faith? How much discomfort, how many challenges to our earthly peace and contentment does it take to shake our commitment to the Lord and his people? How much danger or risk to our health and safety do we deem too great to continue faithfully in assembling with the saints and pursuing the Lord's work in our lives from day to day? Perhaps our faith isn't as genuine as we would claim it is perhaps we've been the stony ground all along and it just took a little bit of discomfort to expose our faith for what it truly is. But this genuineness shows up in how we respond to cultural and emotional discomfort as well. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11, when Paul had gone to Thessalonica, the Jews there said, these are the people that have turned the world upside down. This is different than everything that we have ever taught, that we have ever believed. We're we're being required to step outside of the dictates of the old law. But the people in Berea, we see in Acts 17 verse 11, says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Is that the heart that we have? Truly. Is that the heart that we have? Or are we willing to let our comfort zone dictate what we accept and what we reject? We need to make sure that it's God's word. If we're genuine in our faith, then no amount of emotional or cultural pressure or discomfort is going to keep us from doing exactly what we see God has directed us to do within his word. Do we have our minds made up on issues before we've truly taken the time to sit down and deeply consider whether or not they're what the Bible teaches? Or are we willing to go against all we've known, believed, and been comfortable with in the past if that's what it takes to follow Jesus? Would we have really wanted to be part of the New Testament church? Would we have wanted to go through the physical discomfort, (laughs) I think discomfort is kind of a mild word to describe what they went through. Would we have been willing to go through the discomforts of breaking with all that we know and we're familiar with in order to serve the Lord and be a genuine disciple? But thirdly, the New Testament church was unimpressive. At least by the standards of the society in which they lived. In American culture today, churches function largely like businesses. And to be a successful church, you need to find a way to sell yourself, right? To appeal to the desires and expectations of society. Uh, For many, that means entertainment, rock band performances, feel-good motivational speakers, impressive architecture maybe, coffee and donuts, game nights, social programs and activities. But how many of those things can you find in the pages of your New Testament? That's not what we see at all, in fact. The New Testament church doesn't look anything like the modern church of American society. Churches in the New Testament didn't consist of big, impressive buildings that functioned as some type of spiritually flavored social clubhouse. They were groups of people that assembled to share in the Lord's Supper, To pray, to sing, to read and study from God's word, and to stir one another up to love and good works. In a great many cases, they assembled in people's houses. Either that or public buildings like synagogues or schools. We see many examples of locations talked about that they assembled. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 19, we see that Aquila and Priscilla... Uh, had a church that assembled in their house, I think in Ephesus. In Colossians 4, verse 15, we see that there was a church in a woman named Nympha's house in Laodicea. In Philemon, chapter 1, verse 2, there's a church in Philemon's house in Colossae. In Acts 19, when we see the church in Ephesus, they start gathering in the synagogue where Paul is regularly reasoning from the scriptures. But when the Jews cast them out of the synagogue, uh, they go, it says he took the saints to the school of Tyrannus. And so, this, this public Greek school, at the hours that they weren't meeting, uh, the saints would meet there. And that's where they continued to preach and to assemble. You know, I'm, I'm very grateful uh, that we're able in December, Lord willing, to look at renting another space down the street. That hopefully will be a little bit more comfortable and accommodating than this space has been. I'm thankful that we can put up a sign, that we can have a dedicated place just for our assemblies and not deal with the distractions of sharing a place with uh, some other institution. That we can fix it up to best meet our needs. I think it's a good evangelistic tool, a good setup for our own growth and edification. But let's pause and recognize that that alone is a great deal more than any church that we see in the New Testament having as far as where they assembled. And so if we develop the mindset that, uh, you know, if if we're meeting in some rented facility, if we're sharing some facility, if we're meeting in a YMCA, if we're meeting in somebody's house, then, then we're not really being a real church. Well, by what standard? Not the standard in the New Testament. In fact, that's what we see most churches, all churches in the New Testament being, at least when it's described to us. The first archaeological evidence we have of a building built for the express purpose of housing the assemblies of a Christian church is in about 300 AD in Aqaba, Jordan. Now, there may have been some before that. Uh, There may have been synagogues that were converted to church buildings there may have been other greek public buildings even pagan temples we see uh, eventually converted into churches but i think we need to rethink what it is we're trying to be are we trying to meet the world's standards of what a church should be what a church should look like are we trying to impress by being this more business oriented self-selling church are we trying to be the church of the New Testament? Is that the church that we would want to have been a part of? Or is that a little bit unimpressive for us? Well, the church in the New Testament wasn't really focused on those things. The church was rather spiritually focused. But Part of what spurred me on in my thinking about this lesson is our study in 1 Corinthians. If you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26... Through 31, Paul reminds them about their calling, about how the gospel appealed to them, and what kind of people the gospel appealed to. It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful. As I said, I I think having some type of facility can be an effective tool for our edification, for evangelism. But let's make sure that we are having the priorities of the New Testament church. They weren't trying to impress the society in which they lived. In fact, by societal standards, this ragtag group of people were to be looked down upon. They were low. They were despised. They were not of noble birth. They were not meeting the standards of wisdom that the Grecian society appealed to. They were foolish. And as we look through the book of 1 Corinthians, we see that that spiritual focus was supposed to be showing in their assemblies. You know, in 1 Corinthians 11, we see that, that the culture was getting a little bit into the church in Corinth. And that the Lord's Supper was becoming more about satisfying their earthly appetites. Paul says that's not how it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be carnal in our thinking. Rather, the purpose for you coming together and breaking bread is so that you can remember the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. That's what it's about. And in 1 Corinthians 14, when they were using the spiritual gifts to impress people and to show off, you know, well, I I can speak in tongues. He says, let all be done for edification. That's what it's about. Let all be done decently and in order. You know, you you think about the society in which we live. Think about the society in which they lived. What kind of religious community did they live in? You know, these pagan temples, they were pretty impressive, right? All their statues, all their idols, all their architecture. And they appealed quite a bit to the carnal desires of society. Right? Even the the sexual and sensual desires. Um, That the the pagan worship around them was this riotous, loud worship. Uh, You know, these little groups meeting in houses, you know, meeting in the school of Tyrannus, uh, you know, after hours. They're nothing like our pagan temples. What about us today? Do we look at churches around us? Do we look at the American standard of what a church should be and let that be the pattern? Let that be the model that we're trying to achieve? I know in my own thinking, uh, I need to be more spiritually focused and how I think about what it is we're trying to accomplish, who it is we're trying to be as a church? Would we have wanted to be part of that church? You know they're not that impressive. They're nothing like some of these great churches that we see in our society today. A.W. Tozer said, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. Worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. What are we reflecting? Would we have wanted to be part of the New Testament church? But fourthly the early church was challenging. The New Testament church had problems. As much as we look to them as our pattern, this doesn't mean that they were always perfect, that they always perfectly lived up to the ideal that they proclaimed. They had to deal with a great deal of wrong attitudes, of division, of immaturity, and of sin. Look back in Acts chapter 6 in verse 1. Just just a few pages into the book of Acts, we already see problems arising within this church. Uh, Acts chapter 5, you see Ananias and Sapphira lying, being struck dead because of it. Acts chapter 6, look in chapter 6 and verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. There's racial division In the early church. Here within, you know, presumably a few months. Here they're they're dealing with uh, brethren who are prejudiced against others because of their cultural and racial background. And we we see this concept even ramps up to be a, a bigger issue as time goes forward as the Gentiles are brought in in Acts 10. Uh, by the time of Acts 15, there were brethren saying, no, you have to be circumcised. You have to become a Jew if you want to be saved. You, you can't be a Gentile. You can't stay a Gentile. You know, what, what if that was a problem that we were dealing with here in this church today? What, what if you walked into these doors and one of the things that you noticed early on was that there was racial division in this church that that we looked down upon uh, or treated as second-class kingdom citizens, people uh, coming from from different racial backgrounds. I, I think most of us would say, I don't want to be part of that church. And understandably so. But that's a problem that the early church dealt with. I think what's important here is not whether or not a church deals with problems, right? <laughs> Any church that is living, that is growing, is going to encounter problems, It is going to encounter issues. What is important is how the church handles those problems. And that's exactly what we see the church doing here in Acts 6 and Acts 15, handling this in a way that reflects the character of Christ, that reflects his love in a way that honors God's will for his people. Ultimately, the New Testament church was a growing church, and that's why they encountered problems like this. That's why they had to work through problems like this. You know, a a dead church that's not doing anything, is not converting anybody, well, they might be able to get by just doing the same old thing week after week, and not deal with a whole lot of new problems, right? Not the early church. No, you see in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, they were adding day by day souls that the Lord was saving. And you notice what we read there in Acts 6 and verse 1? It said, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Why did this problem arise? Well, because there's a bunch of new people. And there's a bunch of new people coming in with immature attitudes and wrong ideas and wrong thinking. You know, what what if we said, well, (laughs) if we just hadn't converted all those Hellenists, we wouldn't have had this problem. If we just hadn't converted all those widows, we never would have had to deal with this. No. No, the church was willing to deal with that issue, to work through that issue, because that's part of growth. Brethren, that's what our attitude needs to be. Think about Corinth. We we mentioned them briefly a moment ago. You know, why did Corinth have so many problems? You read through the book of 1 Corinthians... And the sexual immorality going on among them, the, the uh, association with, with pagan worship, the corruption of their worship. Why, why was that a problem in Corinth? Well, we find out in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you want to turn there, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 9. Notice what, what Paul says here, and I want to draw our attention to what he says at the very end of this passage. But starting in verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Why did the church in Corinth have so many problems? Because there were people who were converted who had been sexually immoral, who had been adulterers and homosexuals, who had been thieves, who had been revilers, who had been drunkards. And they had a lot of growing to do. I think sometimes... What we're looking for in a church is a church that doesn't have to deal with problems. Wouldn't it just be nice if we didn't have division, if we didn't have issues, if we didn't have misunderstandings and miscommunications and, and sin and immaturity that we had to deal with within the church? You know, that, that's the church that I'm looking for. Well, then I'm not looking for the New Testament church, actually. Because the New Testament church had a lot of issues that it needed to work through. What's important is that we have the kind of devotion and commitment to the Lord, the commitment to growing and building up the body, to being what God wants it to be, that we are willing to work through whatever immaturities, whatever divisions, whatever misunderstandings that we need to. Do you want to be in a church like that? Well, if not, then you wouldn't have wanted to be in the New Testament church. And so I want us to challenge our thinking today. Are we really seeking what we claim we are? We say we're a church striving to follow the pattern of the New Testament. But I'm afraid sometimes that if we had lived in that time, we wouldn't have liked being part of that church. It was inconvenient. It was uncomfortable. It was unimpressive by worldly standards. And it had a lot of difficulties and challenges that it needed to work through. But brethren, that's the church that I want us to be. May we be devoted. May we be uh, spiritually focused. May we be genuine enough and committed enough to growth. That we're willing to do whatever it takes to be who God wants us to be. If you recognize today that your priorities, that your standards, that what you've been seeking is not what God desires for you, won't you change? Won't you change in your attitude and your thinking? If that's manifested itself in your actions in some way that needs to change, won't you repent? If there's some way that you need to confess your sins before these brethren and ask for their prayers, God has provided us with one another to encourage and support each other as we seek to be more and more who he wants us to be. And if you've never committed your life to the Lord, if you've never buried your old man of sin in baptism, God has provided a way that you can be buried with Jesus and you can be raised to walk a new life No longer living for self, but living for the one who died and rose again on your behalf. Do you need to make that commitment today? If there's any way that we can help you in your relationship with the Lord, won't you make it known by coming forward as we stand and sing together?